Got bad news, I got beat up by six of the seven dwarves. Not happy. <laughs> happy was somewhere else. So. All right. <clears throat> uh, the, the, ch- the new church on Thessalonica, they weren't happy either because they were suffering. And they had three questions that they had for the Apostle Paul who planted the church not long ago, a couple years before. And they said, hey, we are new believers in Christ. Uh, so why are we suffering like we are? And so um, actually they had three specific questions that Apostle Paul was addressing in his letter to them in First Thessalonians. Why are we suffering? Why the persecution? Why is God allowing this? An age-old question that we've wrestled with ever since. He said in verse 3 of chapter 3, we sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service, in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. They're trying to figure out why are we being persecuted? You know, if God is supposed to be blessing us, why are we being persecuted? And, and we've asked that same question. Um, and then another question that they asked were, well, okay, so we know that Jesus is supposed to come back. How are we expected to live through, during this per- in the midst of this persecution, yes, how are we supposed to live that way? But also, how are we supposed to live in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back soon? And so last week, we looked at Paul's three words to them in chapter 4. He said, avoid sexual immorality, love each other more and more, and work hard. And now the third question Paul's dealing with in chapter, latter part of chapter 4 and chapter 5 Questions about the end times. When, in fact, will Jesus return as he promised? And what happens to believers if they die before Jesus comes back? Will they still participate with us or will they be forever forgotten? Or, and so they had these questions. And then in chapter 5, Paul continued and asked, How then shall we live in light of the understanding of Christ's return? And so, Lord, we ask you as we uh, focus on these, this topic of Christ, your return, we pray, God, that you encourage our hearts today um, and you challenge our hearts today as well and give us insights, Lord, in Christ's name, amen. You know, there are several views that are uh, promoted about Christ's sec- second coming, and, and they're all views within the context of Scripture, you can argue all of them. There are probably seven different views that Christians have argued over the, over the centuries, actually. Um, the, the most prominent views in the early church all the way up to 1850 um, was the uh, historic premillennialism view and amillennial. Those were the two views that were held uh, by the early church. For example... The historic premillennial, there's a chart of that. You know, it says that um, we're living in the church age now, and then, it, and then the tribulation will come nearing the end of the church age, seven years, and then after the seven years of tribulation, and we will suffer, as Paul said, expect persecution. Um, then Jesus will be raptured, or he will rapture the church, but immediately they come back to the earth. There's no disappearance for seven years during the tribulation. Uh, This view uh, purports that 
we go through the tribulation, we're raptured, we come back with Jesus, who then sets up the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. And then after that, he will set up the new heaven and new earth. So that's the pre-millennial view, millennial meaning 1,000, and the rapture happens before the millennial, pre-millennial. Um, uh, such believers such as Justin Martyr, AD 100, or uh, one of the Apostle John's disciples named Papias in 60 AD, and Irenaeus in 130 AD, they, were, they held to this view, among others in the early church. And then, and then there's the amillennial view. It looks like this. Amillennial view simply says the millennial kingdom of a thousand years is just a symbolic number. As the book of Revelation uses numbers and colors and animals, they're symbolic. doesn't mean that they're not true. They're true, but it's in symbolism. They're not literal numbers. And so many have believed this, that when Jesus returns, that's the end. He's going to come in the sky. He'll we'll be with him forever. In heaven or on the new heaven, new earth. Amillennial view. And in fact, Jesus said, you know, the kingdom of God is not just a futuristic thing. Jesus said, I've come to usher in the kingdom. Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Look at the kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is near. This is how you are to pray, disciples. Um, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You're to pray this right now, disciples, because the kingdom of God is here. It's growing like a seed. It's right there in your midst. It's not just a futuristic thing that we read about in Revelation. The kingdom of God is already here, and you are already co-reigning with me, but not in full. The fulfillment will be when Jesus returns physically, and then the kingdom will, will be completely fulfilled. But it's in process of growing, like the seed growing into a tree. So that's the amillennial view. Who believed in that? Well, have you heard of Martin Luther before? Or have you heard of John Calvin? Or St. Augustine? All these believers in the early church, they believed this as well. Up until the late, and then someone even today, J.I. Packer, still believes in this view and is still very popular among many Christian Orthodox theologians. And then there's a post-millennial view. We're not going to talk about that. That kind of went kaput during the World Wars, one and two. Um, but then the modern premillennial view. This is the view that I would guess 95% of us would believe in this room because it's the view that we've heard since we were born. But the problem was that it came into being in 1850 by a guy named John Darby and then Schofield and guys like that. And then it caught on with people like D.L. Moody, and they said, hey, this view really sells. In fact, for evangelism, it's ideal because people get scared into the kingdom. They don't want to be raptured. They, they, they want to be raptured. They don't want to stick around, you know, for the unholy trinity of the, you know, the beast, the antichrist, and the false prophet. They don't want to go through the great tribulation. Take me out of here, Jesus. And so people rushed to the altars, and they accepted Jesus. And so it, it, it worked well. It, it looks like this. The church ages now, and yeah, there will be some persecution, but then, and then Jesus will come before the great tribulation, and will disappear. Boom. And then once we disappear, then the seven years of tribulation will come, and then the unholy trinity will, will be in power. And after seven years, then Jesus will return another time, a second time, to set up his 1,000-year reign on earth, and then usher in the new heaven, new earth. This is what we believe. 
today because of the movies and the books that we've seen that scared the snot out of us, right? The Left Behind series or The Thief in the Night or The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. But here's the point. All three views we can argue biblically and no one really knows for sure how it will happen because none of us have experienced it. But we can all be assured that Jesus is coming back and he's going to be faithful to his promise. What it looks like, we don't know. But if we know him, we'll be caught up to him and we'll reign and live with him forever. Um, There's got to be room on the highway uh, we, we've got to make room. We have to hold in tension the different views as we're all going down this major highway rather than cut people off and shove them, you know, like the other day or a couple weeks ago, shove them off the edge of the, you know, side, you know. No, we've got to have room to agree to disagree when it comes to this. And so Paul says, what will happen though? He was addressing this concern, not trying to put a timeline together. What will happen to our unsaved loved ones who died before Jesus' return? Will they spend eternity with God, or will they miss out on this? So Paul wanted to encourage their hearts in chapter 4, verse 13. He says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed that those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind, who have no hope. Paul says, Be encouraged. You don't have to grieve like ones who have no hope, but you can have hope because Jesus is coming back. You can hang on to hope. Why? In verse 14. For we believe that Jesus died and he rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him, those who died. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. They will be with Jesus before we are. And they expected Jesus to come back during their lifetime. And so you remember when Jesus died, he was crucified and his disciples were hopeless. They were living in despair because, oh my, we're believing a lie for these three years now. And now our Savior's gone. He's been brutally murdered in front of our faces here. But then the despair didn't last long because on the third day, Jesus was alive again. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, Jesus was the first fruits of our salvation. Meaning, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of death comes through a man as well. In other words, because Jesus died and he rose again on the third day, he paved the way for after our death, we will rise again and be with him. He will, he will raise us to new life. That's the promise. Without this hope of resurrection that we celebrate every Easter, then we'd be fools to live the Christian life because there'd be nothing to look forward to beyond this life. You might as well get as much as you can out of this life because there's no more. Even Paul said in verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But we believe in the resurrection. I remember going as a hospital chaplain in Chicago um, when I worked there, uh, I went to a guy's deathbed, um, and he, was, he knew he was dying. Uh, he was still conscious and coherent, so I was able to converse with him, but he was hopeless. When I asked him questions about what he did for his life, his hobbies, his family, 
He was like hopeless because he had no hope of eternal life in the resurrection. I said, well, what are you going to, this, this ranch that you had and this big house that you built and, and all your car collection or whatever, what are you going to do with that? He said, who cares? I don't care. I'd give it, it to, whoever wants it can have it. You can have it. You know, he's just hopeless because he had lived his entire life on what this world could offer and he was highly successful but now it made no difference at all. We can have hope because we believe that after our last breath on earth, we breathe our very first inhale of celestial air in Christ's presence. And then he will come back for us. Paul then got more specific about this hope, referring to his victory lap, if you will. In verse 16, he said, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with a voice of an archangel, and with a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. There are many who teach that when Jesus returns, it's going to be a secret disappearance and vanishing of millions of Christians all around the world. If you happen to be playing baseball or softball in the summertime and some guy cracks a left field, you know, high into left field and you're playing left field, but then the rapture happens, then what they will observe is a glove dropping to the ground and the ball bouncing to the ground. And the only good news for the hitter is that it was his first inside the park home run he ever got. You'd see, you'd hear dishes crashing at every restaurant as, as the servers who are believers or those in the kitchen crash, boom. You, you'd see uh, cars uh, just veering off and just plowing into telephone poles if they were manned by Christians. You'd see airplanes crashing into the side of mountains if they're flown by believers in Christ. And this picture is really great too because some of them are doing somersaults up there in that last picture. It'd be like the best worlds of fun ride you could ever be on, right? Well, we've all seen the end times movies and we've been scared to death, but are they accurate? I don't think so. Pastor, you're a heretic. No, I stand with more Calvin and Luther and St. Augustine. I'm in good company. That's how I believe. That's my conviction based on Scripture. And I'll share a little bit as to why. If you want to know more, you have to come to the hot button issue class. In other words, I don't believe in a secret rapture. But I believe we'll be raptured, you know, in that first picture. Remember, up and down again. We'll be caught up and come down again. Uh, it just means we'll, we'll, we'll be with Jesus and he'll come down. Um, well, Paul teaches, though, in this scripture, which is the primary text for the rapture, he says when that day comes, it's not going to be secret at all. There's going to be a loud trumpet. There's going to be archangel command. There's going to be this, this spectacle in the sky. Unless you believe that only Christians can hear it and see it. But all the other people are blind and deaf to it. And that could be viable. That could happen that way. Um, it says, the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Well, what did Paul understand this to look like? And if you go back to the original context, and you can read this in commentaries. Um, this is what they would have seen or they would have thought. 
When a powerful king would come into a city, a walled city, from the wilderness or from the desert, this king would have been regarded as a god with a small g back then. And he would have had all those who worshipped him and all his bodyguards around him. It would be a parade, an entourage coming into town. And guess what? They would play the trumpet announcing his arrival into the city. And when the trumpet played, then everyone would hear and they'd come out and they would meet the king and they would usher the king back into the city immediately and they would celebrate together the arrival of the god or the king. Same was true for military heroes. You know, after a victory, they'd, they'd go out and meet the victor, victorious general and all his, his soldiers. And they'd all come in and celebrate together the victory. We have won. That's what they would have seen. It reminds me of when I was a kid. And after supper, we heard this coming down our street. Up on the top right. You know, the... That, that truck coming down and hear the happy music. And so on my street, there were tons of kids. We all came streaming out, flying out of our homes after supper, lining up, trying to get the best, best place in line so we could celebrate our dessert together. There was nothing secretive about the appearance of any of these images up here. And I'll tell you a couple, I'll, show, I'll, I'll explain a couple other images there. There was no disappearance for seven years. Um, they just met the king and they came back immediately. Or the hearers could have thought of the parable on the left, bottom left, parable of the ten bridesmaids. They were prepared to meet the groom who was coming into town and they would go out and if it were at night, they would have their candles lit, their lamps lit, and in this parable only half did, and so they went out, the five went out to meet the groom, and immediately they ushered the groom to the bride and brought him back into town where the bride was housed, and they would celebrate together. Or you might, they might have thought of when Jesus came to Jerusalem on that first day of the Holy Week, on Palm Sunday, he's coming into town with his disciples, the Messiah is coming. And he's riding a cult. And so they went out and they met him and, and they ushered him into the holy city because the Messiah is here. Hosanna, save us, Messiah. That's what they would have thought of as well. This imagery when they read First Thessalonians. And that's why their early church fathers believed that it was an immediate return to the earth where he would reign. But of course we don't because we've watched the movies and we've read the books. And incidentally, the first 1,850 years, no one believed in a secret rapture. So I don't know what the answer is and it really doesn't matter uh, because he's going to come back regardless. Um, he goes on in verse 16, The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This was an answer to their question, what's going to happen to those who have died, our loved ones? Uh, the, this image would have answered this major concern uh, that the dead were buried outside the gates of the city wall. And so when the entourage marched in, then they would have come to the cemetery before the other people came to greet them. And so in a sense, the dead in Christ 
would have connected with this entourage coming into town. But of course, in, in this case, you know, when Jesus returns, the dead in Christ will rise first. And so he was using the same imagery to say, you know what? The dead in Christ are at an advantage because they will be the first ones they, that the Savior will interface with. And then all the rest will rise as well. And then they all be raptured in verse 17 into Christ's presence. But I believe they will immediately return to earth where he will either set up his 1,000 year reign or if you think it's a symbolic number, he will set up the new heaven and new earth. I could be wrong, um, but many, many have been wrong then too, historically, and that's okay. I don't think that's Paul's objective in writing this or in writing about his second coming. He's not trying to come up with a timeline. We are so fixated on trying to figure out a timeline, right? So Paul then moves on to the most important issue. So in light of the fact that Jesus will come back, even for the dead, then how are you to live? How are you to act? How are you to think? And so he said, first of all, in chapter 5, he said, well, don't try to predict the day like so many do today. Do not do that. Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night when people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, etc. In other words, when I, when I return, no one will be expecting it. It'll be like a thief in the night. Even Jesus didn't know when he would return. When he was talking to his disciples, he's, and, and Jesus said in Matthew 24, but about the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father knows. So why the heck do we try to predict that if Jesus didn't know? So he says, don't make that mistake like so many did in this next picture. I mean, there have been hundreds and hundreds of times historically where it's been taught, okay, I figured out all these things from Ezekiel and, and Daniel and Revelation, and I figured out, oh, that number means that, and that. he's going to come back in 2011. Or it's been, it's been predicted so many times before. You can read books on it. It's a mistake. Because what if we did know the time? What if I told you, as your pastor, God gave me a dream last night that he's going to return in 2024? You would have one of two reactions. Either fear and anxiety, and, or you would have this irresponsibility uh, um, excitement. Uh, let me explain. Um, Jesus is coming back in 2024. Someone might say, no, 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 no. I want the chance to marry my fiance or even get married or, or I want to watch my kids grow up or I want to have grandkids or, you know, I, I want to at least one time have the Buffalo Bills win the Super Bowl. <laughs> or my, in my wife's case, the Minnesota Vikings all have lost four times, you know, both teams. Uh, so we'd either be filled with grief or we'd be filled with self-centered neglect. We no longer need to fight Injustice, because Jesus is coming back. Woohoo! Um, we we no longer really have to reach out, but we need to just prepare ourselves. And this is what the Thessalonians were doing. They were selling their belongings or giving them away. They were abandoning their homes. They were just waiting on the mountaintop. We know that Jesus is coming back any day now, and so they were abandoning all responsibility. After all, what is the use of participating in brush up Mac if it's going to be destroyed in a fire? Or, or if it's irrelevant, we'll all be gone. We're all out of here. 
Why should I care for people who are not believers? You know, I'm, I got to prepare myself. Jesus is coming back. And so they were irresponsible. Instead, Paul says, you need to anticipate his coming. In verse 4, live as though it might happen any day, but you brothers and sisters are not in darkness, so this day should not surprise you like a thief. In other words, you don't know when it's going to be, but you need to anticipate it as if it's going to happen any day. And then you'll be filled with anticipation and urgency to win as many people to Christ before he does return, because it could happen today. Chapter 5, verse 5, you are all children of the light and children of the day. And we do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then let us not be like the others who are asleep. Asleep regarding we have no concern about. But let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, they get drunk at night. They live for themselves. Hey, let's just have fun. Let's go party Let's live for the good times. But in verse 8, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith, love, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. In other words, Paul's saying, guys, Jesus is coming back. We don't know when, but he will. So wake up and put on your faith. Love people more and more and have hope that the world can't understand. And whatever you do in word and deed, do it all in the name of Jesus. You know, if you own two vehicles, it's on loan to you from God to use to build his church. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. How are you using it to glorify God in heaven and to uh, share the love of Christ with others? Your two vehicles. 1 Thessalonians 4.11, and make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. This is where we ended last week, so I'm bumping back a chapter um, to close. You, sh- you should mind your own business, work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. What does that mean? How, ca- how-, how can we lead a quiet, quiet life and mind your own business and still be loving others and, and trying to work against injustice. I mean, it, it seems to mean, you know, just hang yourself. Don't get to know your neighbors. Lead a quiet life. Mind your own business. This is not what Paul me- meant. He didn't mean the Sunday school teacher asked the children before she dismissed them to church. She said, why is it necessary to be quiet in church? And then the kids said, because people are sleeping in church. <laughs> That's not what Paul meant. Paul didn't mean live a life of private isolation. He said, lead a quiet life. He meant slow down. Get off the hamster wheel of your activity and busyness and the frantic pace of life. Slow down so you can hear the voice of the Holy Spirit directing you how to live in the kingdom and for the kingdom. Because God wants to use us every day for his glory. And then he goes on to say, mind your own business. What does he mean here? Just... Don't pay attention to people. No, what they were doing in Thessalonica, they were, they were not minding their own business. They were coming together in their holy huddles waiting for his return, and they were gossiping and criticizing those who disagreed with them. And so that's what we do when we're idle. We spend time interfering in the affairs of others with an attitude of criticism. Um, someone said, the next time you have the opportunity to express criticism, ask yourself, is this about helping the other person grow? Or is my criticism about helping me express my frustration? There's a good way to criticize and a bad way, right? 
Oswald Chambers puts it this way, God never gives us discernment in order that we may criticize, but that we may intercede for others and help them. And then Paul says, thirdly, work with your hands. They were giving up their jobs. They're giving up their possessions. They could care less. They're all going to burn real soon. Um, Paul says, no, you got to be responsible. Whatever you do in word and deed, in your work, do it for my glory to benefit others, to love others. I had a friend during Y2K when I lived in Indiana who uh, he was freaking out about Y2K, and, and he, uh, he's gone now. Um, but he told me to get, get, withdraw all my money because you're going to lose everything. And that's what he did. He was a wealthy man, and he withdrew everything. He sold his mansion, and he moved to Kentucky in the, in the, in the boondocks a month before Y2K because he knew that this world was going to be in chaos and the government would come in and take everything and he knew the Antichrist was around the corner. He was freaking out. Many adopt that type of attitude about Jesus' return when we fixate on it. But Paul said, no, no, lead a quiet life. Every day you wake up, ask the Holy Spirit, how are you going to direct me for your glory today? Mind your own business Don't meddle in other people's affairs, criticize them for their differences, and then work hard. Be responsible. To what end? In verse 12, that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, those who are not believers yet, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. And then he said, again, focus on putting on your faith, love, and hope. Someone said, don't try to predict Christ's return, but anticipate it. And they, you've heard it said that some people are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. This is what the Thessalonians were. They were so heavenly minded that they were no earthly good. They didn't benefit anyone but themselves, right? But Paul turns that on its head and he essentially said people are the most heavenly minded. People who are the most heavenly minded will be the most earthly good. I'll close with this illustration. Imagine you hop on a plane that's doing a flyover McPherson and you go up with your friends and, and you're getting to the door, the door's open, you're looking over and it's kind of cool and then the plane kind of jostles and your friend falls out and you think, oh man, what do I do? I, I gotta go rescue him, I gotta help him but your friend doesn't have a parachute and you don't have a parachute and so it'd be kind of foolish to what end? You'd both crash to the ground and die so it would be a hopeless situation or doubly hopeless if you jump out unless there's a parachute hanging right there and you put this vest on, you zip it up, and then you do the Mission Impossible. And then you grab your friend, you pull the ripcord, and you land safely together because you have a parachute. The parachute um, represents the hope of Christ that we have. Paul says, put on hope, put on love, and put on faith. That's what the parachute represents. That's what we have. And in light of this hopeless situation your friend is experiencing, we have a parachute. And we can do the Tom Cruise thing, of which, by the way, many people say I look like. But we we put the (laughs) Tom Cruise. Why why do you laugh? Um, And to what end, though? We put on faith, hope, and love, the parachute of faith. 
Faith meaning I'm going to live and persevere even despite the suffering that I'm experiencing. Hope. I'm going to have a hope that even though it's really difficult, I'm going to trust in in Christ and he's going to return and that hope is going to make me look different than people who have no hope. And then I'm going to put on love. Whatever I do in word and deed, um, I'm going to do so to what end? That your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. And then Paul ends this section in verse 10. Jesus died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. If you know Christ, you have this hope and faith and love of Christ that is covering you. You have this vest. And, uh, and God has entrusted with each one of us to be good stewards of everything we hope, own, everything we have, who we are every day. That was the purpose of Paul writing about his second, the second coming. Not that we can get together a chart and create, um, scare people into heaven or scare people, period, with them, but to be faithful right now, today. And that's where we can all agree. If you don't know Jesus, you don't have that hope, that vest of hope on. Um, you don't have assurance. You're like that guy in the hospital room who lived a great life, but he was completely hopeless on his deathbed. But you can be by simply just saying, Jesus, I want to know you, and I want to live for you. I want to live with purpose. Lord, come into my life and make me a child of God, both now and for all eternity. Let's pray. So if there's someone who doesn't know Jesus, you can do that simply by asking him to forgive your sins and and make you a child of God. Uh, Lord Jesus, if there's someone here, I pray that they'll pray, Lord, I want to know you. I hear about you. I believe in you, but I don't know you. So I want a deep, intimate relationship with you. So please come into my life and give me a hope in the midst of this hopeless world that I may know you and live for you and find purpose. Change my life, I pray. Amen.